Welcome to the History Today podcast. In this episode, we talk to Peter Frankopan about Silk Roads, old and new, and Matthew Lyons and Catherine Fletcher discuss academia and early career researchers. Firstly, a brief mention of our October issue, which is out this week. In the cover story, Roger Crowley describes how Portugal's seafarers created an empire and stunned 15th century Europe to emerge as a major power. Also in this issue, we mark the anniversary of the Battle of Agincourt with two articles. Gwilym Dodd explains why England's unexpected success lured Henry V into pursuing a disastrous foreign policy, while Stephen Cooper looks back at how the battle's 500th anniversary resonated with Britons during the First World War. Another of the feature articles this month is by Peter Frankopan. It's called The World We Have Lost, and in it, Peter argues that history should not be viewed from an Eastern or Western perspective, but from one that links the two together. It's a fascinating approach, and early this week, Paul A. caught up with Peter via Skype to discuss his ideas in greater detail. Peter Frankopan is Senior Research Fellow at Worcester College, Oxford, and the author of a new, highly praised book, The Silk Roads, A New History of the World, which is published by Bloomsbury. In it, Peter has applied his global vision to a fascinating article published in the October edition of History Today. It's called The World We Have Lost. Welcome, Peter. Hello. You open your article um, by pointing out just how diminished is our view, the common view of world history. And as a consequence, our inability to even begin to understand uh, so many of the current concerns of the modern world, rooted as they are in the past. And this seems to be an issue of chronological depth as well as geographical breadth. I think that's exactly right. I mean, uh, without even worrying about school curriculums, uh, I think when one talks about people's conceptions of history, when we when we talk even casually amongst those who are, who are interested in history, we look almost exclusively at the history not only of Europe, uh, but of Western Europe. Um, so we're all pretty well versed, I think, in um, in the events like 1066, the Romans in Britain, the Wars of the Roses, and so on and so forth. But when one starts pushing, forget about into Central Asia along the Silk Roads and so on, even when we start getting to uh, fairly central parts of Europe, places like Poland, uh, Moravia, Bohemia, uh, Croatia, etc., Poland and Ukraine, uh, we start to lose touch. We have almost no knowledge whatsoever. I mean, Scandinavia exists purely uh, for the for the blip of the Vikings. There's no engagement at all with the idea that Sweden once had a, a kingdom that stretched down as far as the Black Sea, or that the greatest European land empire is that of the Lithuanians. So I think that that we have a, a a mindset of how what 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 we look at in the past is so closely tied to a set in stone narrative that I don't think you need to. Uh, be uh, over dramatic to start saying, well, you can you can tip the apple cart over, and perhaps there are different places to stand, uh, not only to understand history of other regions that we don't look at, but how do the things that we focus on, how do they look from different perspectives? How does the First World War look from Persia, for example? Uh, what does global conflict mean in the 20th century? What does terrorism? What does what does the American intervention in the Middle East uh, in the last decade and a half? How does that look from India and China? And those kinds of questions, I think, are things that I tried to explore in Silk Road, try to really liberate ourselves from the, um, the confines of the 
the, the well-traveled tra path of what history should be about. Because that history is one, it's, an, it's a very common thing to say history is written by the winners, but uh, history is written by Western Europe about Western Europe. And when it's written about other parts of the world, it's normally about Western Europe's engagement with those parts of the world. And you, you seek to, to offer a very different vantage point here, um, which is that of the Silk Roads, the title of your book. So where exactly in the world are we talking here? Well, the word Silk Road is a, is a very sort of exotic one. It conjures up in most people's mind a sort of a, a, a route coming out of China and broadly ending up somewhere in the Mediterranean, possibly including Venice. In fact, the, the term was first coined in the late 19th century by Ferdinand von Richthofen, who was the uncle of the Red Baron, First World War flying ace. And he called these connections across Asia the Seidenstrassen, in plural, Silk Roads. Uh, that there was no one route. In fact, there's a whole web of connections that, that crisscross Asia. And um, they go from north, south, east, west, in all directions. And, of course, most people's contact um, and travel uh, involvement along the Silk Roads was also very local. It didn't have to be over long distances. But so it, it's, I use the, the concept of Silk Roads, I think, as a, as a way of knitting in how it is that the East and West are connected to each other. And again, I think there's an awareness in the modern world that you know, there are more scholars writing about India and about China. But that, that bit across the middle, how people connect, how ideas are shared, how goods produce are exchanged, how ideas, how languages, how faiths are expressed. Um, it, so, so it's quite an amorphous region that I'm talking about. I'm more interested in the idea of exchange uh, across uh, the great land masses of the world. Ultimately, I cover in my book, The Americas, when we get there, but from the, the, the pillars of Hercules, the Straits of Gibraltar, right up to the Pacific coast of China. Um, what's remarkable about the book is, is, is its chronological depth as well as this geographical breadth. And I think one of the most striking insights in it is just how irrelevant Europe is in classical antiquity. Indeed, you make the point that Rome's making is not in, in Western Europe, for example, the making of the Roman Empire, but in Africa. Well, as a boy, I mean, the, the first person that really lit my fire, I suspect like lots of other readers and listeners, uh, was Alexander the Great. And the question that I, I never understood, having been, been taught constantly about Western Europe, is why was it that this man who set out to conquer the world, never cross, it never crossed his mind to head, to head west? Uh, you know, this young man, deep talent, unbelievably skillful general with a, with a very clear political touch as well. It, the, the concept of Europe was utterly meaningless to him. Uh, for ancient Greece, the prestige enemy were, were the Persians, and for Rome, it was the same thing. And to an extent, uh, and we can you can overlabor the point, but th there is to an extent things like Asterix and Gladiator and Julius Caesar crossing over into Britain. We have this sense, I think, that that we are the heirs of Rome. But I think a, a, a Roman citizen being woken up from deep sleep today would instinctively want to know what is happening in the East. And, and of course, in, in, the, in the antique period, in, in the period of antiquity, I think it's easy to forget also that um, Christianity, that great uh, contribution that Europe's made to the world with its flaws and its beauties as well, uh, you know, it's a, it's a Semitic Middle Eastern religion. Uh, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Zoroastrianism, uh, even Buddhism, Hinduism have important uh, melting pots that all correspond to the the center of the of the world right across the silk roads and i think we need to start we need to ask i think it's an interesting question to ask why is it that 
all of the language groups of the world, all of the faith, the, the principal faith groups of the world, why do they all collide in the same region? And why is that region uh, quite a long way from Europe? And Islam, again, we, we find uh, this, these very, very subtle shifts here in approaches to different cultures. And indeed, it's Islam that looks upon Christianity during the Middle Ages, which you detail brilliantly, as the barbarian, as the, as the much more primitive um, idea. Well, I suppose there are lots of there are, that's a very good question, and there are lots of ways one can explore that. I mean, I suppose that the the most generous way is to say, well, societies that are very rich are able to indulge uh, in cultural and intellectual patronage. So, despite whatever Richard Dawkins talks about uh, the the his supposed barbarism of Muslim societies, you know, maybe the reason why Oxford and Harvard and Yale and Cambridge and these great universities all over Western Europe they've risen over the last four or five hundred years is because we've had the patrons and the wealth to support them. Uh, but until about 1300, by far the richest part of the world uh, was the Islamic world centred on the great city of Baghdad, where a superpower was born out of, um, out of uh, in the years following the death of the Prophet Muhammad, that eventually united uh, a region from Spain running across the whole of North Africa through Egypt uh, up as far as the Himalayas. And that wealth that streamed into um, the Islamic world allowed for the great minds from, from all over, including Christians living in this, the, the, these regions, to find patronage and to find an ability and, a, and a, a, um, a, 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 an audience for ideas to be expressed. And I think in that, that golden age um, where ideas have a premium and can be funded, you have these incredible discoveries uh, measuring the circumference of the world or looking at optics or doing what we would call today laboratory tests to see the effects of uh, spices, of drugs, or medicines being measured incredibly carefully, very diligently by scientists who are aware that contamination can be a problem or can skew results and that you have to repeat unusual results. And how do you explain concepts that you don't quite understand or don't seem to make sense? And I think that, again, that idea that uh, the Christian world is the one of sophistication, uh, is one which needs to be reevaluated because we have Masudi, the great Arab geographer, who, dis- who does, does, a, does a description of all of the world, and he reaches Europe and he says, well, there's absolutely no point to me wasting any, any space describing what I see because there's nothing here of any importance. And to an extent, I think that that's a, that's a perfectly reasoned and even a reasonable description at that time. Things, things change, and I think what the scope of the book allows is to see these big rhythms running through history over a long time. And I mean, I start by saying globalization is something that is a fact of life. 500 BC, where you find rulers in China, uh, where you find uh, magnates and societies in Syria and so on, who are clearly communicating and borrowing ideas from each other. And I think that that accepted pathway of how we look at history that's so rooted in the present day, uh, it's very hard to shake off. And you can only do that by reading the source materials um, across this big region. Well, that's one of the really um, humbling things about your book. Is, is one, it's a, it's a remarkable academic feat um, in terms of the mastery of the sources. But also it's humbling in the sense that one realises just how little one knows about the histories of vast parts of the world. And I'm sure that's a common reaction among many of the readers there. But I want to explore the reasons for why we ignore these things. And I think you've got three particular reasons you pick up on there. One is this narrative of the rise of the West. Two is 
to Western his, historians' um, commitment to specialization. Yeah. And then I think really fundamentally, you point to the <coughs> lack of language skills without which this kind of history simply cannot be done. Yeah, I think those are all, I mean, you've, you've phrased that much better than I, than I would, but um, I, 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 that's absolutely right. I mean, what's, what's curious to me is that when we look at how, the topics that um, are very popular and sell lots of books uh, to the wider audiences and are taught in schools, uh, they tend to be things that have been taught and been popular for, for decades. I mean, I think if you took a, there was, there, was, there was something I saw in the press this week about major battles in British history. And I, I think if you had uh, asked the same question 100 years ago, exactly the same battles would have come up. There, there is the same, the same script. And we live in a world where communication is much more rapid than it has been before, of course. Uh, but we're still teaching our children French and Spanish and, and Western European languages. That's if they're lucky, of course. Uh, and if they're really lucky, they might learn some Latin. And if they're in the tiny minority, they might learn some Greek. But of course, if we don't have any language skills to be able to cope with Russian or Arabic or any of the Semitic languages or, or Indian Indic, Indic scripts as well and Chinese, it's very hard to be able to not just read what writers say, but understand what they mean. And those are two very distinct things. It's not just being able to read the words, but what is the author actually trying to say? And I think that that, that is a that is a key a key problem of that. You know, if you ask any of your readers in a straw poll, who is the best living Russian contemporary novelist, or who is the finest uh, modern Arabic painter? You know, our frames of reference of recognition are so narrow. Whereas you know, all of us can talk about well, hopefully, could talk about opera or the, the top 20 in the United States, whatever it, whatever it might be. We have this idea that our society leads and therefore is worthy of study. And I think you're absolutely right as well to talk about the specialisation. You know, when I was dropped down the mine shaft to do my PhD, um, you know, those who were dropped into the mines at the same time to go and dig for jewels, uh, you know, some, some had to dig extremely hard and didn't really find anything. You know, I had a friend working in a laboratory uh, who it turned out that he, his, his 600 experiments proved that, in fact, there was nothing, nothing new to show. Whereas I, I happened to push the doors open in the Byzantine world where I found a treasure trove that had never been touched before and uh, all these materials that just hadn't been read, hadn't been looked at. And I see lots of my colleagues working in increasing detail on minutiae, and it's very hard to, to stand back and see, see the bigger picture. And hopefully what I've tried to do in the book is a, is a, sort, of a, a, new, a sort of new way of trying to look at history where you take that academic rigor of the fine fine detail of individual tiny studies based on small communities in uh, Portugal on the west coast of Africa or uh, you know the, the latest research on village life in late antique Syria and try to put them into this bigger picture of trying to look at look out for bigger bigger themes so it's trying to it's, i suppose the book is trying to be a guide for someone who loves history who's willing to be challenged who's willing to be, to be open-minded and think about things in a, maybe a slightly different way. And I never like to overstate the claims of history or historians, but I do think that this book genuinely informs our contemporary world. Um, not necessarily in the obvious ways we might think, but the, the tragedies that are unfolding in parts of the reasons co uh, regions covered by the Silk Road um, are very evident here and and very real. Uh, so all of your all of your readers of uh, the wonderful history today and uh, listeners to this podcast are all people who are uh, passionate about history and passionate above all I think about asking questions about the past and what I hope that the Silk Road's book 
does is it encourages people not just to go and read more about particular topics they might be interested in to think about them in different ways, but but also to really recognize that studying history, not just reading about it and being engaged and interested in events that happened in the past, but to really understand the resonance and the importance of, of looking into the past to try to explain the world that we're living in. It's a very complex, interconnected world. But again, I think what the book shows is that that interconnection, that, that rhythm of warfare, that rhythm of competition for resources is one that, that goes back a millennia. So in a way, funnily enough, my editor said to me, he felt greatly relieved when he got to the end of my book, because in fact, he felt that the problems in Ukraine, the Middle East, the sort of the dislocations in China and in the Southeast, South Asian Sea, you know, this is nothing really new that we're going through. And we can kid ourselves that, uh, what, with everything we're facing is brand new, but that, that's what my children think. And I think for those of us who are um, able to read and able to engage with the past, using history to understand the present, uh, there's, no, there's, no, there's no better time, I think, to be opening up parts of the world that just have been ignored. Well, it certainly had um, the effect on me of feeling wiser and yet also more curious about the world as well. And many of the sources that you cite there maybe largely the secondary sources you cite there, I'll be heading to, to. It's a tremendously stimulating work. And Peter Frankopan's book, The Silk Road's New History of the World, is published by Bloomsbury. And Peter's essay, The World We Have Lost, is in the October edition of History Today. Thank you very much, Peter Frankopan. Thank you. Thanks to Peter Frankopan and Paul Lay for that piece. Now it's over to Matthew Lyons, who spoke early this week to Catherine Fletcher, about the plight of young academics. Hello, uh, my name is Matthew Lyons. I'm a columnist for History Today. Uh, I wrote a piece uh, in the September issue um, about the problems experienced by early career researchers in the humanities generally, but, but particularly in history, um, which received quite a lot of uh, comment and feedback on the internet and elsewhere. And um, uh, Catherine Fletcher, Associate Professor of History and Heritage, wrote a very interesting blog piece in response, um, which was uh, picked up by the Times Higher Supplement, Higher Education Supplement. And uh, Catherine is here today with me to talk about uh, issues and what perhaps can be done about them. Um, to, to start off with, Catherine, I mean, how, how extensive do you think the problems are for early careers researchers? Well, I think the problem stems from a sort of historical assumption that the most logical career for um, a PhD in history to go into is an academic career. And if you look at the numbers of academic posts versus the number of um, students who are now graduating with a PhD in history, the picture is not particularly rosy. So since 1994, um, Brody Waddle has, has done some very helpful calculations on the Many-Headed Monster website since 1994, there's been about a 100% increase in the numbers of students graduating with PhDs and only about a 20% increase in university um, history teaching posts, teaching yeah. research posts. So, you know, there's an obvious mismatch mm. there. And I think the concern is, you know, the, the other proportion of the, those mm. you know, students in history who are not going into academic jobs, are we doing enough to make sure they are supported in whatever they mm. go on to do with their PhD? And are they going into their PhD with their eyes open and really being informed about yes. the situation with the job market? Yes. I mean, my impression is that there isn't a great deal of careers advice or support and that um, 
obviously anyone who, who wants an academic career, you're I'm almost certainly inclined to think that you're going to be one of the lucky ones. But, um, you know, there are obviously a whole range of careers uh, in history outside of academia. Um, but are, is a PhD necessarily useful for all of those? Well, there are certainly careers outside them. Um, sometimes in the heritage industry, I think it's fair to say that it's becoming more and more common for people to go into curatorial jobs in museums and galleries and so forth with a PhD in hand. That didn't mm. used to be the case, but there seems to have been a bit of inflation of qualification there. Yeah. So, so that's more common. But there are other things that you might think, well, you know, a PhD is a great route into writing history books. And indeed it can be. Yes. But if you look at the median earnings for authors mm. in the UK, they are not very good. I mean, something like £11,000 a year for a yeah. professional writer um, when they did the survey in 2014. So thinking that yeah. that route, that career route is going to be a positive outcome of PhD in history, well, you may do very well, but it's equally a gamble to an yes. academic career. Now, there are lots of transferable skills that people with um, PhDs in history have. So um, for someone like me, whose PhD was in diplomatic history, then I could have gone into diplomatic service mm. and gone for a civil service career yeah. doing something that was informed by my historical study. And I know people who've considered doing that. So there are lots of ways that you can take your PhD and think about applying it all across society in policy mm. roles, in some places, international development roles, depending on the content of the PhD, there are places you can mm. go. And universities, I think, are getting more savvy about this and more aware that they yeah. need to be providing the guidance. Yeah. But, you know, that's something that I think we've we've perhaps not been as quick to do as we might have mm. been. Mm. I, I mean, it, looking at it from the institutional point of view, I, I was quite surprised um, you know, History Lab Plus um, did a, 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 a wide survey of, of their members' um, problems with work for early career researchers, mm. uh, which fed into a code of contact which they developed. And a lot, of, a lot of the issues on those are really very simple kind of personnel management issues um, about in, including making sure that ECRs have uh, access to library space, office space, um, facilities they can use that, that they. That they um, in terms of the contracts that they uh, are paid for the time outside the, the specific yes. teaching time. But, you know, it it's ought to be, I think, fairly straightforward personnel management things that obviously aren't being done on a wide scale. I think sometimes within universities, because universities have a history um, of being quite diverse institutions, and some of them have a lot more centralised oversight mm. of sort of human resource functions than others. Mm. And in some of them, things have historically been very devolved to individual departments and left to heads of departments to sort out. Now, that's fine if your head of department is a person who's really on the ball and yeah. aware um, and engaged with that. But if they are busy, overworked, um, somebody with a different set of priorities, um, or who just hasn't been made aware mm. in turn by their line managers and by the human resources and people centrally that they need to be ensuring that mm. their um, um you know temporary teaching staff have access to all these things then it can be quite difficult and i've been a, a trade union rep in a university mm. and i've seen that you know some departments manage these things mm. wonderfully and others don't do it until somebody really goes in there, puts their foot down and says, hang on a minute, why are you not doing, mm. you know, why are you not paying holiday pay correctly? That was mm. something I dealt with a number of years ago. 
temporary teaching yeah. staff weren't getting the holiday pay they were legally mm. entitled to because of an oversight. Yeah. And it was corrected when I queried it, but mm. you know, these things happen because mm. university administration, in some places at least, is quite devolved to yeah. departments. So, yeah. you know, I think um, early career researchers need to be one, aware of their rights, mm. but also prepared to, to go along and be quite assertive about saying, well, hang on a minute, why am I not getting this and can I have it? And yeah. asking is asking is something they should do. Yeah, yeah. I'd be interested to know how many of uh, how many earlier careers researchers have joined the UCU, for instance, which does a lot of good work on um, working conditions and salary and so on. Yes, I don't. I do, I mean, it's certainly mm. something that that we encourage people to do. Mm. And when I was a, a UCU representative at the University of Sheffield, yeah. we were quite active in in encouraging people on short term mm. contracts to join the union and to to take advantage of the advice that and and support it could provide. And we did a lot of casework around um, casual and fixed term contracts. Mm. Um, not because I think Sheffield had particular problems, but because mm. institutionally within the sector, these contracts are used a lot more than I think they should be. Mm. And as a consequence, you know, whenever you get to the end of one of these contracts, mm. there's a whole set of issues around redeployment and mm. whether there is space for somebody to stay mm. within the university or not. And that, you know, it, it's much easier to navigate that process, I would mm. say, if you have um, representation and expertise from the trade union than if you don't. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the the growth in in PhD numbers, uh, the the exponential growth as opposed to the growth in in jobs, is clearly a major factor in the problem. But also the the um, introduction of, of zero hour contracts and, and very short term uh, contracts for for ECRs is is, is another big issue. Um, it see, I, I imagine that that's. Um, university-wide policy rather than departmental yeah they're all i mean i think there have been casual teaching contracts mm. in universities for a very very mm. very long time i mean this is not something that's just sprung up in the last 10 years whether it's got worse or not is actually quite difficult to pin mm. down statistically yeah. because even if you put in a freedom of information request to a university about this you will often get the reply back we don't hold that information centrally mm. because the hiring has been devolved to departments mm. so even universities don't know exactly how many mm. casualized staff they employ so very mm. difficult to be precise about this but i think one you know one of the problems is that as there's been a greater number of history PhDs graduating, mm. more people feel that to have a chance of an academic career in the long term, they need to take these very casualised contracts, even yes. if the conditions are quite poor, because it's a way mm. of keeping a foot in the door. Yeah. So there's perhaps a driver towards doing that mm. more and more as you have a bigger pool of people competing for quite mm. a small number of jobs. Mm. Um, one of the things I was struck by in the blog piece that you wrote was the idea of um, you know, universities grouping together to create structures, career structures and paths for early career researchers. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that idea. Yeah, I, mean, I think we often tend to complain quite a lot about aren't things dreadful aren't things dreadful mm. and there are and, and i was trying to think about a possible positive solutions that mm. might reduce some of the instability mm. in terms of career development for those people who do go into academic jobs so it's important mm. to say this is not going to be a panacea for yeah. suddenly creating more jobs this mm. is about um stability for a group so what what i suggested was that universities who often group together and collaborate on 
um, particular issues anyway. For example, some groups of it, we have consortiums of universities that work together to provide doctoral training, might also do that with rotating mm. early career roles where mm. you could be guaranteed work over a period of, of years at one of a group of universities rather than necessarily just at one university and that mm. that would enable people to plan their lives a little bit more i mean that's yeah. quite a you know a small reform within the existing system mm. but it it may be something that 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 we could discuss and i think mm. it's important to try and get ideas out there about mm. how we can make things better mm. yeah. um you know that that than they currently are yeah yeah i mean i, I think uh, perhaps part of the problem is that uh, a lot of um, you know full-time academic staff feel very vulnerable and um, and exposed themselves in in, to, in in terms of their careers, and that that doesn't um, I suppose in a sense they feel quite powerless about their own positions, and therefore uh, by extension they they feel powerless to change things for more junior staff and for early careers staff. Yes, I think a lot of people feel very beaten down by mm. the system yeah. and I think that, that that's a problem because there's been a lot of, you know, right since the 1990s, which was when I first worked at the university um, in, a, in a temporary admin job, right, you know, go, going back then, people have said after one reform after another, we don't like mm. grant cuts, we don't like the introduction of tuition fees, we mm. don't like an um, increased workload. Um, we don't feel that the big expansion in student numbers in the 1990s was ever properly addressed in mm. terms of the increased staffing numbers to yeah. match. Yeah. But none of that has ever, has re, you know, the academy collectively mm. hasn't managed to push back very much against mm. um, that big shift in the nature of universities from, mm. say, 25 years ago. Mm. So I suppose the question then is what, you know, are there things we can do now? Can we, you know, have a bit, a bit more of a think about mm. what we might collectively want to change if we had to prioritise something? I think for a lot of academics, it will be workload, mm. and that then yeah. has a has a knock on effect on the number of jobs that exist. Mm. Because actually, if people only worked their official working hours, mm. there would need to be an awful lot more people working yeah. in universities to. Yeah to cover the work mm. and even a small reduction in workload would potentially mm. create some new positions. Mm. But I, I think that academics and universities need to feel a little bit more courageous and positive about mm. saying we're going to put forward some alternatives and we're going to say it doesn't have to be done like mm. this because if we don't then it will simply mm. get worse and worse. And there are already voices saying we need to push tuition fees up higher. We've mm. got a government that's trying to introduce a teaching excellence framework, mm. which while I'm all in favour of providing excellent teaching, mm. provide putting another level of bureaucracy mm. and another level of monitoring and targets. Well, we've seen what that has done in the school system. And mm. I don't think many teachers will tell you that, mm. you know, offset inspections and so forth are, are positive in terms mm. of how their workload is organised. And I think... Um, we need to be very clear that this is not something that that we think is going to be helpful in in the university sector either. Going going back to a point um, you picked up earlier on uh, Brody Waddell's research and into mm. the number of PhDs. I mean, should we actually discourage? Uh, I think that you know most colleagues now are fairly mm. blunt with students mm. about the fact that one cannot expect. Mm. 
that the normal route out of a PhD will be a route yeah. into an academic job. Mm -hmm. And if they do choose to go into a PhD, they need to think quite carefully about why they're doing it, mm -hmm. that they're happy with the fact that what they may do is to spend three years doing the PhD mm -hmm. and then go off somewhere quite laterally from that PhD yeah. rather than into an academic career. And they need to sort of familiarise themselves with the options because mm -hmm. in some industries, um, unfortunately, I'm not sure that a PhD is always looked on positively because mm -hmm. you can be perceived as overqualified. So yes. people need to look around quite carefully and think about the jobs that they might like to do mm -hmm. and what types of qualifications are typically looked for and if they do still decide to do the PhD because you know the expansion of the sum of human knowledge is is a good thing yes. and it's a fascinating thing to do mm. you know to have three years to devote to a piece of in-depth research that's great but it's not a straightforward career move yeah. in the way that it might once have been. Mm. Yes, no, I, I, I think that's true and I think for, from, from someone sort of outside the academy I think the problem with the PhD as a uh, as something to have in your CV for for a, a, you know, a, a commercial job of some kind is that is it, it is inevitably a very specialist bit of research that you've done and that may be perceived as being too niche and too specialist and less applicable than someone who someone who has stepped back and with, with uh, you know a more general overview of history and um, uh, decided to pursue a, a career in TV or in publishing or, or whatever it might be. Yes. Yeah, I think I think that's the case. I think you need that the PhD students who are coming coming to the end of their studies need to think quite carefully about how they communicate the skills that they have mm. to future employers. And university career services, as I said, they're, they're getting better at advising people on how to do this. Mm. But it is something to think about the fact that out there, there may be a perception that you've spent three years in the ivory tower, whereas somebody else applying for the same job has spent three years in the real world. And unfortunately, mm. you know, academia is often conceptualised that way in the mm. public mind. So thinking mm. about how to get past that impression that, that an employer mm. may have is going to be quite important. Mm. And I, I think also probably the assumption is... Uh, many people outside the academy is that if you've done a PhD it's because you wanted a career in academia and therefore if you haven't got one you you may well be perceived as in, quote, in quotes a failure. Yes and I, I think that that's quite it, it's quite important to try and get past mm. the view that non-academic careers alternative careers mm. are second best yes. career in academia. Yeah. I mean I have a career in academia and I like it, and I think still think it, I would rather do this than do some other jobs. But I don't think it's a better job, yeah. or you know, in, in many ways than than other than other things that people do. It's it is what it is. It's, it, it has its downsides, it has its upsides. But yeah. I think in terms of the way that we talk about the academic job market, sometimes we do give off the sense that this is the thing that PhDs yeah. need to aim for, yeah. and getting away from that perception, just presenting it as one of a number of options mm. post-PhD is really important. Mm. Yes, no, no, I, I agree. I agree. And so so um, just uh, pulling back to the, the, the situation of, of you know, people who have chosen academia as a career, you know, early, early career researchers, um, I, th I think, um, you know, as, as we've been talking, I think there's a lot that, uh, that can be done to empower them, for people to empower themselves. Mm. Uh, in terms of, uh, so for instance, the History Lab Plus Code of Conduct, mm -hmm. even if it can't be uh, f imposed uh, faculty by faculty, there's, 
many things on there that individual academics can do to ameliorate the conditions of, of their junior yeah. staff. And and as as you were saying, there's there's many things that um, that academics can collaborate on within their faculties and, and across across the, uh, the higher education sector to improve things. Yes, absolutely. Great. Okay, thank you very much, Catherine. Our thanks to Matthew Lyons and Catherine Fletcher for their time. That's all for this episode of the podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening.